And um, like we prayed yesterday when we were picking up all that garbage, you know, that's just a really small thing. I mean, our town, our town needs a lot of work, like lots of towns, you know. Um, but our town needs a lot of work. And so that's just a really small way to try and help to pick up some messes. Um, but the messes are way bigger, way deeper, and um, it's the cry of our heart and the cry of our church, I hope, that we're saying, Lord, use us in some way, shape, or form to help come alongside. Not to make everybody think like us, but to really connect with hearts that are just have hurting, been shattered, struggling, not quite sure what to do. Um, and hopefully it's also another sign that our church, you know, we're not really a white glove church. Um, I really hope that we continue to be a place and a culture and environment where you don't feel like you have to come to church and look a particular way. That you don't have to come to church and have a particular face on. That you can only come to church when you're feeling pretty good. I, I, hope, that's, I hope that's not the message that we send. It's really not... It's not a biblical one nor a good one, because the church is like many things. Um, you know, it's a place where we praise, it's a place where we worship, it's also a hospital. You've got to call it what it is, right? So we just pray for our town, Lord, and we just ask, Father, that you just uh, set people free in our town, Lord. Um, people are lost in a way of thinking, Lord, that um, you know, their own happiness and way to go about it is the ideal best way for them. And Father, we can talk uh, till we're blue in the face, Lord, with reasoning and persuasive words, Father. We need to be able to be led and empowered by your Spirit with a heart of love like they've never seen before. And our homes, Lord, have to match up with what we talk about, Father. And so I pray in our hearts and in our homes, Lord, that we truly understand what it means to be in relationship with people and to be able to highlight and call out and draw attention to the value and the destiny that's on their life. I pray, Father, we'd be a group of Christ followers that myself, that each one of us, we'd be able to highlight, call out, and draw attention to the amazing value and destiny you have on each person's life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's what we're called to do, right? We're called to love other people. And that's way deeper than doing nice things for other people and doing a good deed for a day or whatever it is. It's really important for us as Christians to be able to highlight, call out, draw attention to the destiny and value that's on their life. That's a really difficult thing to do. That doesn't come naturally. You have to really invest into people. Shake shoulders with them, get to know their families, get to know their kids. Maybe it might even be in our own home we might even be bad at that. Calling out the value and destiny of people in our own homes. But that's like how you're really showing love to people. It's not to get them to think like us. And that just takes a lot of spirit-led relationship and wisdom, right? That's all for free. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And um, 
In your bulletin, I have that we're going to chapter 2, verse 16. I'm not quite sure it's going to work out. To be totally honest with you, it's not really a comprehensive message we got going here. It's kind of some thoughts that just, it's, <laughs> I don't know, it's not real connected. So we'll just see how it goes. You all right with that? Okay. And I promise I won't go super long. Let's start off with this, actually. This was interesting. I read this this week. You guys are all on the right page. 1 Corinthians 118. There we go. Let me read you something. This was interesting, and this ties into what we're going to talk about. So here's the title of it. Um, Here's what being good without God actually means. So being good without God. Interesting article. In recent years, researchers have begun to study the moral practices of a relatively new and growing group within America's religious landscape, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. Nuns are people who, when asked to describe their religious affiliation, respond that they are atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. As of 2014, the nuns, also known as the unaffiliated, are the second largest religious group in America. I'm not quite sure how that's religious, but second largest religious grouping in America coming in just under evangelical Christians. As a whole, the unaffiliated tend to be less religious by the standards that surveyors have traditionally used to measure religiosity, attendance at worship, services, daily prayer. So they're like measuring religion in a different way that doesn't use services, doesn't use daily prayer, doesn't use like reading. So there's like a new change of language. So what they're going to do, what this author is going to talk about is that religion is now has a class, there's a type of religion that is uh, moral. That's moral. So they get more into more detail. Interesting. Um, Thanks to the Pew Research Center, we now have some data on this. In a recent report on religion and everyday life, the organization asked unaffiliated people whether 16 pre-selected beliefs and behaviors were essential. Important, but not essential, or not important to what they think it means to be a moral person. So they picked out 16 criteria and kind of asked people what they thought about it. For the unaffiliated, honesty tops the list. So for forming this sort of quasi-religious behavior in person, honesty is at the top, um, with about 58% of the nuns saying that being honest at all times is essential to being a moral person. Um, I'm trying to skip through some of this stuff here. Uh, Integrity was another big one that ranked on the scale. Uh, being grateful for what you have, committing time with family. So honesty. Uh, what was the second one I said? Oh, yeah, integrity. Uh, that was the one I just read. Being grateful, being committed to family, forgiving those who've wronged you. It's interesting, right? And working to protect the environment. So if there's like this other class of, they're calling it religion, what falls into that is honesty, spending time with family, being grateful for what you have, forgiving other people, uh, taking care of the planet. 
It says, beliefs and practices that have been traditionally used to measure religiosity fell near the bottom of the list. About 10% of the unaffiliated believe praying regularly is essential uh, to being moral. 2% believe attending religious services is part of a moral life. So, a.k.a., the fact that we're here this morning is not a really important thing to a lot of people. And they don't feel that's important in any way. And they actually feel that way because they believe that what happens in a church service on a Sunday morning with a group of people is not really impactful in any meaningful way. It got people maybe worked up with inside of a building, but when they got out, interesting, right? Um, In an open-ended question, about a quarter, uh, 23% of nuns, wrote that the golden rule, a behavior cited by Jesus in the Bible, was essential to morality. Um, So the golden rule, right? Which is, right? Do unto others, have them do unto you, right? So that was important, because that's like treating other people. Um, It says, the results of the Pew survey are evidence that the religiously unaffiliated community values action over belief in the supernatural. says, humanist and non-religious people respect completely the fact that our religious neighbors also feel the need to pray, but our view is that action is irreplaceable. Actions ultimately make the difference between living a good life and not living a good life. And that kind of closes up the article there. So it's interesting, right? So if we think about a couple of things, and still playing to what we're talking about, um, and the title of the message is The Way of Wisdom, Um, And what we're going to read through this passage is that um, there's a certain mindset, right, that we live in, in our world, and there's a certain mindset within the church. Um, And a lot of what we live in here impacts the church in in great ways. So in that article, it's pretty interesting. Like, as I read that article, I wouldn't say that I disagreed with every single thing in there. I would certainly agree that action is really important. I would certainly agree that a belief without action is, <laughs> what is that, faking it? What do you, what do you even call that? Uh, psychotic? <laughs> like, what is that? To, to totally look at life, to believe a certain thing, and then not actually have that play out? Hypocrite's a good one. Right? <laughs> like, So, and I think that's like what Jesus was getting worked up about with the Pharisees and religious leaders. Saying, hey, you guys are like really good at talking about it, and you're really good at memorizing it, and you're really good at having synagogue or church services, and, but you're like how you treat people and the way you think of them. It's craziness how disconnected it is. So what I take away from that article, at least partly, is that I think the church has done a really poor job at having their belief impact their actions. Like the number one goal of Christianity and being a Christian is transformation. We get saved through that. We get to go to heaven. But the number one goal 
for us as Christians, for myself, I come in knowing, like I'm coming to church knowing, uh, I got to do this, that, all this other stuff. I come to church knowing that, hey, God's going to speak to my heart in such a way that I need transformation. Am I open to hearing it? Am I listening for what he's saying of things he's trying to change and deal with in my life? And I think many times, like, the church family, like, shows up with an idea of, hey, I need God to fix this thing for me and get me out of this jam. And then if he doesn't, well, I'm not going to give him the time of day. And I think that's caught up with the church. So now they form this other religion that embodies a fair amount of Christian characteristics but it's, they want to leave the Jesus part out because that would mess everything up. It's interesting, right? When honestly, the truth of the matter is that, man, Jesus would just tie it all together so that way it works right. Because if you just have that other stuff, it opens up huge doors to pride. It opens up huge doors of manipulation. It even opens up, opens up huge doors of division. So that's interesting. Um, and I think that, like, within that article, there's a certain type of mindset, a wisdom, that, like, appears to be wise and seems like a right way to go. And there might be threads of truth to it, but it, it definitely, I think, diverts and distorts, you know, what God has. Um, so, with that being said, let's take a look at what the passage says and foolishness and wisdom and what's good and what's right. Verse eight, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I hope, I hope for some of us, like we, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I hope right away, no matter who walks up to you, no matter where it is, no matter what may happen, it's really important, I think, for the Christian to have the message of the cross on standby, like always ready. The message of the cross. What is that? What does that mean? What does that even look like in my life? Not necessarily, what did my Sunday school teacher tell me? What did the pastor say about it last week? But no, how has God truly revealed the message of the cross in my own life? And I guarantee you, as you start to talk about and interact with uh, people in that way, God will bring to your mind and your memory past things from Sunday school, stuff that the pastor said, something about you read somewhere else, whatever it is. Now, Paul's going to go into detail about why people think it's foolishness um, and about why it's powerful. So let's take a look. Verse 19. Uh, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, 
the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So what happened is, is Paul is saying here, where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher? We can be really smart and have a lot of like letters after our name and accomplish a lot of education. See, here, here's what happens sometimes when some people read it. It's like, okay, uh, God's a really, fan, a really big fan of all the dumb people and he's anti all the smart people. And, and that wouldn't be a correct way to read it. Um, it would be probably a better way to read it and interpret it to say there are a lot of people who think that they're really smart apart from God and they have it all figured out. And Paul said, it's no, no. In fact, they're like blinded by how much that they know. Because within that, like God won't fit into the picture. Which is even kind of crazy to think about because some of the greatest minds that have ever lived they have all fallen on the spectrum somewhere of some kind that there is an intelligent design and creator and infinite being. I mean, me just being, you know, a math teacher and being around science and math for a long time, like one of the greatest minds within that arena is Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein. But Isaac Newton really laid the foundation for everything. And... He is known for consenting to the fact that what we see and what we are around and how the world works and comes together, and he is responsible for so much, it's like ridiculous. There absolutely was a God. It's undeniable. And if you spend any time reading an autobiography on his life or a biography on his life, you'll see that and it will shine through. And and it's kind of crazy to just dismiss that and be like, eh, He's too incredible. (laughs) He's contributed too much that we actually still even use and teach in classrooms today. So Paul is saying, like, where where are these guys? Where where is this? Um, God's wisdom is the ultimate. And it says in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Meaning... no matter how many smart people you got in a room, and no matter the era, which during this era, philosophy and philosophical thought like reigned and ruled. And so Christianity didn't play really a high role in that because they felt like it was, it was kind of silly. Uh, you have this one guy who dies for everybody else, everybody believes, and then you know they get to have what that guy had who died. It, it's not... To them, there's not a whole lot there. Kind of foolishness. And so Paul's making a point of, listen, you get all the smart guys in a room, no matter who you have. And he just came from Athens, which was the hub at that time of philosophical thought and developmental thought and ideas. When he left Athens, when he got there, they had no idea. They had a statue to an unknown god. Like that, so they had all their gods that were there because they wanted to cover all their bases. So they had all statues, all their gods there, and they wanted to respect everybody's way to sort of worship and connect each god. And then there was the one to the unknown god. So I guess in a case we missed one, like this, this is that one. So you have all these smart guys pulling from all of this stuff. They still never get to Jesus. 
and you'll still never get to the way of redemption and salvation. Which is why there's such a need for missionaries to go out and to share the gospel, salvation, and the good news. Because this idea that there was this man that was God incarnate and then came and and that's another reason why a lot of people don't accept it because it's like borderline fantasy. So no matter who you have in a room and what you just notice, like if you were just to walk around in the gorgeous like weather right now, go walk around in the woods, go check things out, you'll never just in your own mind, within our own minds, end up to the fact that, oh, I have sin. I need a Savior. Jesus has done that for me. I need to accept Him. But I will never get there. So that's what he's saying when the world through its wisdom did not know him. It says, God was pleased. Oh, okay, how'd that happen? He was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Uh, not saying that like preaching and proclaiming is, is foolish, but there's an element of a person God using a person to declare his truth that's kind of (laughs) silly. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous that I'm talking about anything right now. And it's pretty ridiculous that any pastor anywhere over the globe can really share and impart something from God in a way that empowers and equips other people. Because we all came to God the same way through Jesus. At the cross, it was totally level. We all have to come the same way. It's just then once we get to Jesus, he brings us to different places and does different things. So what happens is it's like we then join God's team and he just puts us in our positions. And then we play it out. Which to me, I think that's craziness. I want a team of all-stars that are dependable, that I can count on, that have an awesome track history, that are not known for screwing up, right? I want all-stars. I want LeBron James. I want Michael Jordan. I want Kobe Bryant. I want everybody. I I don't want the third-round draft pick who has promise. Like, I'm not into that. And it's amazing. It's amazing and incredible how God does that with us. And I hope you hear through that, I hope you hear that there's an incredible amount of value and destiny and promise upon your life. God just put it there. God just put it there. And it's really important that us as Christians, we come to terms with that and understand that. And not fight back on that. Because it's normal thinking for us to then default to, well, you know, I've done this, I've done that, I've been here, I'm still struggling with this. This is still, I don't know. It's the amazing thing about the gospel. It's not like once you get it cleaned up and perfect, then you're usable. When you're surrendered, and repentful and faithfully following, you're useful beyond imagine. 
And it's really important for us to grasp a hold of that because once we do, we're able to more easily step out in faith and do less contemplating and procrastinating. We just look forward to move on because we're going to move on in His power, in His strength, and in His love. And some of us just, for whatever reason, don't have a good grasp on that yet. And it's worth everything, worth everything, to continue to go with God on that until you feel like that's secure. I got value. I got destiny. There's going to be a ridiculous call that's been already placed on my life. I need to be aware of what it is. And for most of us, for much of what we do, it's going to be close. It's going to be close. We're going to be in our little sphere among our people doing our thing. Some of you in this room might go and do something crazy that just changes the world. And honestly, it wouldn't surprise me. Because I'm not all that impressed with you. I'm really impressed with the God that you serve. That, that's like kind of what... That's what gets me about people. So being like a pastor, and you see people like rise... And, and when you see people connect with the God that created them, and they start to now, their mind is being changed and shifted and molded and transformed. Um, I'm like, whoa. Yeah. It's not you. It's like the God in you, and that thing rises through, and I'm like, the pastor, you don't want to get in the way of that. You want that to shine through. So why did this be foolishness? Like, why was the cross foolishness? So verse 22. Well, it's foolishness to the Jews because here's their deal. Verse 22. Um, Jews, they demand miraculous signs. So the Jews are all about the miracles. Show me a miracle. Show me a miracle. You show me a miracle, then I'll believe. Show me a miracle. And there's a lot of people even in church and Christian circles today. Like, I'll take God seriously when I see him do this. That's... Not good. <laughs> Not good. Not good. He is uh, God, the creator of the world. If he really truly is that, um, I- I'm not sure if we put him in a court, like how much he has to defend himself. I think many times in love, when we just cry and we're desperate, like, God, I need you to show I just... I'm hungry for you. You've got to show up on this. I, I don't think you're sitting there like, no, you said that. Yeah. A true heart of calling out. Not, not with the, like, something to, to be proved. But a heart that cries out that, Father, I need you. I, I'm, I'm trying to follow you and give you my worship and my praise. Sometimes my faith wavers, and I know that it shouldn't. So, Lord, if you could connect with me in a way that you haven't before, I'm crying out that you would. He responds to that. That's his heart. That's, that's what he does. But to people that just would sit there and just, well, he's got to show me something, you know, and, and just sort of kind of judge it with sort of an, an arrogant way about it, he's not going to respond to that. He doesn't have to prove himself to anybody. But he does want to show himself faithful and true to those who love him and for those that pursue after him. 
That's really good news. And a really encouraging word. And when I want even more encouraging, more times than not, it's already part of his plan anyways. He knew he'd be crying out that thing that would be taken to that place. It's already in his plans to come through. He already promised even that he would. He says, in all things, I work to the good for those who love me. He's going to do it. He will do it. So hopefully we can't get stuck on our things. Or if we are stuck on something for a little bit, continue to cry out to God. Continue to. Like, don't stop. There's that idea of asking, seeking, knocking. This is when I'm really happy. I have some of the character traits that I have. There's a lot that I don't like that I wish I didn't have. But one of them that I do have that helps in this arena is my ability to be really stubborn and resilient. I can be super stubborn. Just tell me I won't be, and I will be. (laughs) Julie's like, preach. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that helps me a little bit in that arena. You know, that's why I was asking seeking and knocking, because I just will not, I will not let go. I won't do it. Um, but I understand that's not everybody's makeup. But God calls us to do that. And why? Because he wants to, like, you know, have us be begging him for something to do? No, I don't think that's the case at all. I think he wants to draw us into relationship with him so we can have a further understanding of how he wants to plan what he already wants to do in our hearts. So not so much as a beggar or a slave, but more as a son or a daughter who wants to be aware of what daddy's doing. Because I know that even my own kids, you know, I don't want to just give them stuff all the time. And It's kind of fun now that they're younger, but you know, as they get older, I want to give them stuff, but I want that relationship needs to be there when we give them stuff so they can know what it is, they can appreciate it, hopefully they can listen to some words of safety, hopefully. Um, it's, it's a lot more like uh, joyful and, and it's a lot more satisfying when it's like we're just in good relationship and I can bless them and they can truly just appreciate it and I don't have to worry about the blessing Because I think sometimes, like, what we're crying out for and what God has for us, um, some of those blessings, if we're not quite ready, like, it could crush us. It could be too much for us. Ah, there's more, but okay. So for the Jews, they were just all about miracles. And Jesus is like, he did a whole bunch. He even spoke with them in their midst. And you want to know what they said when they, he actually spoke from heaven? He's like, was that thunder? <laughs> That's what they said. That's what they said. And he did all kinds of just ridiculous stuff. So it's like, you could even give people miracles. And it still won't make them believe. That's because that's not their intended design. Miracles are not intended to just get people to believe. That, I, I, I want to make sure I said that. So miracles are not intended to just get people to believe in God. That's not the purpose of them. Because then it creates us to be a people that just chase after the miracles. And if the miracles aren't there, then it just means that God's not there. 
And that's what God wants to avoid. Miracles are for the purpose of for God to reveal His amazing heart of love towards people. And, and it just gets poured out when it gets poured out. It's just unique to certain people at certain times at certain places. And I think much of his heart wants to do it very often. But I don't know how many of his people can really pray and move in that way with a heart of love behind it instead of some other motive. It says, so Jews demand miracles, so it's a stumbling block. Uh, Greeks, they look for wisdom. So they're just all about philosophical, how smart, how impressive. Um, Jesus, you know, he, he chose fishermen. Uh, all through the Bible, you got farmers, um, you got shepherds. You have very unimpressive people doing very impressive things. I hope that makes you feel a little bit better and encourages you. The sky is the limit. That's like the entire Christian story through the Bible. Taking very unimpressive people and making something very impressive. I hope you also don't hear that God never takes an impressive person and makes them even more impressive. Because he does that too. The guy who wrote it was pretty impressive. Paul is a pretty amazing guy. Super educated, knew a lot, rubbed shoulders, just top shelf people. And he was able to use that and sort of parlay into the ministry with Christ and pay that forward. So it's a stumbling block. The Jews all kinds of miracles. Sometimes God does, sometimes God doesn't. Greeks look for wisdom. It says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And when we get a hold of that, it helps us in different arenas. Things like, and I think I wrote a couple down. Um... Ideas of repaying evil for evil. Most of us want to do that, and it feels pretty good if we get a chance to do it. That's not good, right? So God's, God's saying in that case, hey, listen, my wisdom is better than that. So even though it might feel natural, somebody just did something to you or something that happened to you, to respond then back with evil in some way, it's not worth it. God says it's not worth it. He says repay back evil with good. That, that's an area where God's wisdom then clashes with like our wisdom and what may seem right. And that's kind of a big deal. Because there's a fair amount of cases where an individual, maybe even yourself, you might have a lot of right reasons for punishing somebody. Holding them in contempt for some reason. Not responding to them. Um, having bitterness towards them. And God's saying, like, no, that, that's going to lead to problems for you. You can try it if you want. And some of us have tried it. 
for a long time or for a short period of time. And we know what it leads to. It's cancerous, actually. It just destroys us from the inside. You guys say, no, don't do that. Repay it. Listen, it's going to feel totally anti how you're built, but repay them with love. So when their name comes up, man, you just start praying for them. When that thing that they do really bothers you, add that one to your prayer list and sit on that one in your prayer list for a long time. If you have an opportunity to show love in some way, give it to them. And don't try and manipulate them while you do it because we like to throw a shot in while we do something. You know? He's not saying that. But that's an arena where his wisdom is like battling with and there's tension with our wisdom, what we think a right way to do things is. Because we could be in a court, have all the right reasons for everything. And that's like the position Jesus was in. He had all the reasons to not die for us, to not follow through. He was totally right. He would win. But he wasn't about that. His mission was about love winning. That's what he was about. What's another one I wrote down here? Self-happiness. That's another wisdom that clashes with God's wisdom. There's just this mindset, this idea like that just that we live in in our world is that you pursue everything that you need and want for yourself. It will eventually lead to happiness and that's really like the ultimate goal. And I think maybe on the Christian end, it's, it's, it's dishonest to say that everything about pursuing things for yourself is wrong. I, I don't think that's right. I think God created us. He has value and destiny on us. He's filled us with an ambition and with goals in life. I think it would be wrong to just sort of deny that they don't exist and just pl- turn a blind eye to them. But I think for us as the Christian is, Lord, what you've placed in my heart and these goals and ambitions, I want to carry them out the way you'd have me carry them out. I would like to live this life in a way that honors you, that brings you glory. Because the truth of the matter is, hopefully the Christian can respond to the happiness argument. Hopefully the Christian can respond with God so much more cares about our holiness and within that it completely takes care of the happiness issue. But the one issue being is that it doesn't always feel good. (laughs) You just tend to think of happiness as always feeling good. There's a lot of happiness that is coming from a lot of pain. And we live in it and we're around it all the time. One just super obvious one is pregnancy. And I can just talk about that now because we're in it right now. That's like the craziest thing in the world. Like we were talking about number three, and I'm like, I do not want to go through that again. I know. I'm not even having the baby. That is painfully horrific and horrible. Yeah, too late. Got that right. It's horrible. Like I, I don't want to be around that. I re- and I'm serious. I do not want to be. And it's way too late. But 
And I'm like, don't you remember how much that hurts? <laughs> how long that takes? But there's something, right? There's something about, right, within us that, oh, yeah, there's just that pain. But on the other end, and for us as Christians, God is calling us to be like, yeah, there's this pain. But on the other end, and so many Christians are just like, oh, this pain, you know, and we just melt, and we fall apart, and we just, you know, roll over or complain and tell everybody that wants to hear us and all this craziness that we do. So it's like we're a lot better as, as a humankind to approach like a thing like pregnancy in a healthy way with pain and what's on the other side than we are a relationship with him. It's craziness, right? There's absolute wisdom. Absolute wisdom in men going through a trial and having pain and not denying that it exists, not denying that it's happening. Hey, man, this just right now just flat out sucks. I'm not enjoying this. This is difficult. It's bringing me to the end of myself. It's hard. And I'm failing a lot more than I thought I would. Tremendous value in that. And the wisdom that comes from that is that those statements get followed up with, ah, but I know on the other end God's going to do something. He wouldn't just like leave me here and just do this. That's not in his character, not in his nature. He doesn't abandon his kids. I would never do it to my kids. He abandoned actually his son for my sake. (laughs) So there's this wisdom in Christ that's just radically and drastically different than what we know, what we grow up in, and even what our emotions respond to. I don't know. I was going to go to some other arenas, but other arenas that were just wisdom of the world and wisdom of God is just radically different. I just wrote down sex, money, and power. Like, there's just a whole bunch of that. There's a certain wisdom of the world that's attached to sex, to money, to power. There's a whole other wisdom attached to sex, money, and power that's from God. And they're like way different. Way different. It was so awesome. Um, doing uh, premarital counseling with Allie and Josh because their approach on sexuality and the way that they're headed is like way different than a lot of other people. And it was refreshing. And it was a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun and really refreshing. But it's another one of those arenas where it's like, if we don't see the value in it immediately, we're very hesitant to buy into it. Well, I'm not going to save myself in that area for God in that way because I don't know what might happen. When God might do something. When He actually might come through for me. That's like when singlehood and singleness has a tremendous amount of value. And it doesn't get talked about a lot. Like marriage gets talked about a lot. For good reason, um, but not always for great reasons. And marriage gets talked about a lot because, you know, it's, it's really the, the second most covenant that people will ever take. The first one being with God, second one being their marriage. I mean, it's just, and there's nothing like it. And um, 
It's a crazy place where you just get to die every day. And hopefully, ideally, two people are dying together. Um, and if not, it just comes down to one person, you know, dying a lot and just showing and giving a lot. Um, but the tremendous amount of value um, in being single, and if God is preparing somebody like for a relationship or for marriage, is that if somebody can understand and come to terms with that during singlehood, that I'm just going to fully commit to doing things God ways, the way He says it. I'm going to commit my finances to Him right then and there. I'm just going to be, like, it'll just be a thing for me. I just totally, like, my money is just His money. I know how to give. I understand how money works, and I'll carry that into my marriage. And that's a big deal. That's one reason I talk about that first, is because most marriages are falling apart based on just money. They're just on different pages. They don't know how to handle it. It's just a wreck. And even premarital counseling, we just talk about that a lot. So if it's single, man, they can just like work on that arena, right? And then they're working on the arena of sex. That's the obvious one. And how to deal with those just desires and things that are happening on the inside. And be able to put that in a place where it honors God. So that way when you get into marriage, you don't have to now try and figure out how to do that. It's already been happening. And there's certainly ways where God does. He works and brings it through. And much of counseling happens because people during their singles and when they were dating and looking to get married, they never dealt with it. And so now they're dealing with it. They're married, but now they're married. And it's like, ugh. You got all this stuff. A lot of us know a lot about that. And it's real deal stuff. Like we laugh about it, but this is serious stuff, right? This is real deal stuff, and we know a lot about it. And there's too few... Too few people that are just following this crazy wisdom of the world that are Christian, that go to church and they attend services, but they live this whole other life. And then it definitely transfers into their marriage. And then you end up reading articles where people are creating this other religion about the stuff that should be getting done because the Christians aren't getting it done to begin with. It's just, it's crazy. So I think it's, yeah, we'll close up here. But there's this wisdom that's out there. And, and I think in our day and age, there, there is this idea that, you know, Jesus Christ, Christianity, is just pretty, it's foolishness, it's nonsense. You know, we're going to believe um, in some man that is actually God, and then we just believe in him, and then his spirit comes in us, and we actually are becoming more like him. Uh, you know, that's borderline fantasy stuff foolishness. And you know what? If you just have sort of an intellectual, mindful conversation about it, it is. But if there is a Christian story and a Christian message attached to that gospel, all of a sudden there's something to it all of a sudden it takes us back to our Easter story where the best evidence for an empty tomb is a full life. Like you can just share what's going on and what's happening. And our hearts, I hope our hearts will be so encouraged, I hope, or at least be thinking about more 
or at least be battling harder for a wisdom that's from God, a mindset that's from God, and having that just infiltrate every part and every arena of our life. It's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. And in this Corinthian church, you know, they had some kind of different issues to deal with. They had people coming in with crazy ideas. So they would have one guy come in who was really philosophical, really smart, really impressive, and they're like, oh, I like that guy. And then they'd have some other guy come through from another place and be like, ooh, I never heard that before. So they follow that. And then they follow another guy who's like, oh, that's like... And there even is kind of pockets of that in the Christian circle where there's like these like secret messages that only some people know and like we have to find it and weirdness. And I think Paul would address that. I think he would also address our issue today of there's so much time, energy, and money spent towards having a really awesome Sunday morning service. And that's like totally backwards. All the time, energy, and everything should be spent into transform lives. One church service of a bunch of people excited doesn't change the world. It doesn't change your family. It doesn't change the neighborhood. But if the church is committed to holding Jesus Christ up on high, who paid for our sins, His grace empowers our life so we can go out and live a life we wouldn't be capable of on our own. And Christians actually buy into that? then things get transformed. We just have this weird thing kind of in the West where it's like, we just, we love like our entertainment and our shows and our people. Um, And by shows, I mean like in the church and like a really awesome service with all this stuff and I know so-and-so and and they know so-and-so and and, oh, I shook hands with so-and-so and and it's like, it's weirdness. It's like weird Christian image thing. It's a big deal to know who Jesus Christ is. And we meet somebody that like, gets a lot of attention. All right, that's cool. Like, they came to the cross just like I did. So I hope for us, right, close up here, and then we'll do, um, um, we'll do one last song at the end about how God takes us on this journey that we already sung about. But um, we're battling, guys. Like, and, I, and I know that you guys know it, you're around it, you feel it, you see it. There's just this battle of this way of doing life that has like, it, sh- it sounds like wisdom, but it's not. It seems like it makes a lot of sense. And that's where the enemy is successful a lot of ways when things are just making sense to us and we can understand all of it. And that's helpful sometimes, but for a lot of it, there's faith involved. <laughs> and we have to walk by faith. And the truth of the matter is that God is really trustworthy. He does come through. He does show up. But we would never know unless we would take a leap of faith. Otherwise, we're just on the sidelines observing everybody else and just making a call if it's legit or not. And he wants us to be in deep with him. I don't know if I missed something there. All right, ready to sing? Because it really is a journey. That's the deal with the Christian faith. It's a journey. And they, they, they always talk about, I was hearing a pastor, you know, speak this week, and uh, he was talking about um, 
<laughs> you know, other pastors and people he's come in contact with. And, oh, you can stand up if you want. It's fine. <laughs> She's like, I shouldn't stand. No, that's fine. Come on, it's CC Noggy. It's, yeah. um, it's a journey, right? So going from here to here, like that, that's like the journey that needs to happen. And many times it gets from here to here. There's limbs that are like connected between there. Like you have to do actions to get it from here to here. We got to live it out. We have to live it out. Otherwise, because if we just gain a bunch of stuff up here, we're just, you know, <laughs> fat-headed Christians. We don't want those fat bobblehead things, you know, like, it's not what we're called to do. Now we're called to do, and, I, and it's my hope and prayer that God will continue to do the transforming work in our church and in us. So that way, our message of Christianity like, really does a pretty decent job of matching up with what we do. Because we just need to do better. Every, people are watching. They're watching you. They're watching us. Our own family members sometimes are watching us. Be that as it may. Let's just commit to following after Jesus and the chips fall where they fall. All right, let's sing it. Take a stand or sit or whatever you want to do. Yeah, from the Heads of the Heart song. <laughs>